Welcome everyone to the seventh episode slash mid-season premiere slash return of Only Murders in the Writer's Room. I'll be your host, Danny Pilach, and since it's been quite some time since our last encounter, I'm gonna go over a few of the guidelines of this series. First off, much like a majority of the shows and movies I plan to dive into, the following program is for mature audiences only. Fair warning to those who may be the slightest squeamish. Viewer discretion is also advised. Secondly, in this series, we're going to be analyzing how a show or movie was executed. Spoilers included. Then, I'll give my thoughts of how I believe it could have been done better. Sometimes I'll change and mix up plot points, plot devices, or plots in general. Other times I'll just scrap an ending entirely and come up with a completely different one from imaginary scratch. Finally, I'll leave it up to you guys, the audience, if you agree, disagree, or, better yet, if you'd like, tell me your own fan-made ending. I really want to hear what you guys think of the stories, how you would have executed it, and any other similar thoughts you might have. To do such, you can message me through my Instagram at Denny Pivach. That's D-E-N-I, a literal dot, P-I-V-A-C. Now, these past few weeks have been a little chaotic for me, and I apologize for the quality of this episode, but I am literally just winging it and calling this episode my filler. Something to pass the time, but... Also, I hope, enjoyable. What can you expect? Heck, even I don't know. With that said, let's begin executing a story's execution. We'll start with Scream 6. Now, I originally wrote this plot months ago, before I even knew what Scream 5 would have been about, or even that Scream 6 would happen. So, hopefully, it does not upset too many of my listeners who are also avid screamers. My version of Scream 6 begins in Asheville, North Carolina, where the first installment of the series was originally going to be filmed, somewhat paying an homage. This installment, however, tells a whole new story with a whole new gang of victims. Six friends are going to spend their winter break at a cabin located in a village called Little Switzerland, a legit place that my family and I used to travel to during summer. There, they're greeted by friendly faces, but one of them is fake. As night progresses, each friend is murdered one by one until there's only the final man left. It's revealed that the killer was one of the six friends, a guy named Matthew Oliphant. In flashbacks, it is shown that Matthew was originally bullied by his supposed friends when they were younger and in middle school. During summer break, he remodeled himself. His friends didn't recognize him, so Matthew decided to use that to his advantage. Over the years, he studied them until he was sure how to get back at them, one by one. He started to realize his friends were, overall, insatiably ignorant pieces of crap. Though Matthew was the victimizer of the movie, at the same time he was also a victim because of it. He and another quote-unquote friend of his named Ken fell in love with each other in middle school, but through some unorthodox persuasion, Ken turned on Matthew embarrassed to an extreme level. Embarrassed Matthew, of course. Another character is a jock named Daniel Levinson, aka Danny Boy. As as leader, he decides who gets into the game and who gets out. When Matthew remained himself, everyone was stunned, including Danny. He decided to let Matthew join the game. The reason nobody remembered Matthew beforehand was because everyone at school gave him a nickname, Foil Shrimp. Basically, Matthew was weak enough and small enough to be tossed around. With a new look... 
came a new name. In my plot and or script, Dan was the first one to be murdered since he initiated Matthew's quote-unquote prank. Another member of the gang is Kenneth Dolfer, a.k.a. Kendall. He's the token boy next door that Matthew fell in love with. Unfortunately, he grew up in an abusive household, which made him into a literal jerk. Ken changes from Matthew's first crush to Matthew's first nemesis within an hour of the film. He's the only one that makes it to the climax. Next up, Rachel Fyoktistov, a.k.a. Rage, is Danny's girlfriend. She's just basically Danny's evil. Though Ken and another member, Abby, are manipulative, Danny and Rage are just sick. She doesn't have any daddy issues or repressed trauma. She's just a generally mean person. Rage is the second one to get murdered. And finally, the last member of the gang, Abigail, Abby Di Costanzo. These names that were pretty hard to come up with. She is just Ken's girlfriend. She doesn't know Ken's secretly gay, but she does know who Matthew was beforehand. She's also the last victim. Now, I meant for this sequel of Scream to be truly meta because the killer is inspired by the actual movies, not the horror film series Stab shown within the Scream movies, but I mean the actual Scream movies with Nev Campbell, Courtney Cox, and David Arquette. I should have also mentioned this, besides the killer donning a ghost face costume, the only thing, the only other thing that links this installment to the franchise is the references to the literal Scream movies. This movie is similar to Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, which I previously talked about. It vaguely connects it to its predecessors. As for the kills, Danny is killed in a little bookstore and thrown down a sewer, which I actually encountered whilst visiting Little Swiss. No joke, there was a second floor downstairs and or basement that had a grate built within the wooden flooring. From above, I could see water running through a big pipe and thought, someone can die in that. Years later, my story did. As for the character Rage, she is killed by Ghostface as she's skiing. Ghostface trips her with his new weapon of choice, a scythe, paying an homage to Ghostface similarity to the Grim Reaper. Rage then flies into a tree chipper and shredded to bits. Abby is simply slashed into a room. There are also some villagers who are killed too to spice things up for the installment, like a bookstore owner and cabin owner. I was hoping the YouTube channel that meet would get a kick out of counting them. Anyways, the climax has Ken and Matthew fighting from a great height. Matthew eventually loses, slips, and falls through a frozen lake. He loses his memory, but not his life. And that wraps up Scream 6, or as I like to phrase it, Six Scream, with the number 6 replacing the letter S. Replacing the letter S. Sorry, saliva is building up in my mouth. So, to pronounce it correctly, Six Cream, which kind of sounds somewhat erotic, but it is supposed to. So, what did, you, all you, what did you all think? Should the sequel have been connected more deeply to the original series? Should it have been a reboot or a remake entirely? Were there too many cliches or jump-the-shark moments? If so, send me any comments, questions, or concerns you might have through my Instagram. Now, Scream 7, or as I phrased it, sk- This is so hard to pronounce. Sk-sevenim. Sk-sevenim. So, basically the number seven melting into the letter R like a numeral letter hi- letter hybrid symbol. So it's like, you know, it looks weird and sounds weird, but I don't know, I thought for aesthetic it seemed pretty cool. But anyway, yeah, the movie takes place six years, or nearly six years after the events of Six Scream. 
Matthew has been frozen but preserved long enough for someone to find him. That someone is Stu Mocker, one of the killers from the first Scream movie, who is played and will be played here by Matthew Lillard. I have yet to decide if he will be de-aged or look just the same as he does now. Stu explains to Matthew how he faked his own death with the help of his parents and Billy's too. And now I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, wait, if this movie gets inspiration from the actual screen movies, then how can Matthew be playing a character that a character is based off of from a movie that actually technically doesn't exist in real life? Well, the thing is, and I've got to write this in, uh, Matthew imagines this completely. Like, he makes up Stu. Stu is basically a hallucination. What saves him, I haven't really decided yet. Maybe it's just some fisherman or something who's just out on the lake, you know, doing his uh, thing. But, like, basically, Matthew hallucinates Stu entirely. Anyways, they uh, performed a little quote-unquote movie magic, Stu explains. After hearing Matthew's story, Stu decides to use Matt to his advantage. He seemingly trains Matt to become an even more powerful and resilient ghost face. Meanwhile, Ken is back in his Californian hometown and being interviewed by some reporters regarding the events of the previous movie. Though he fools everyone with traumatizing, with traumatizing looks and acts, he's secretly pissed that he never got to finish off Matthew. After finding his friends dead, he realized he could start life anew. He could have a clean slate and new chapter. However, the one thing that remains to be dealt with is Matthew. It does not take long enough for Ken to encounter Matthew. While working in an office, Ken's computer is hacked, and the screen molds into the mask of Ghostface. It starts speaking with Ken recognizing the voice. It's Matthew. He warns Ken that the more lies he spreads, the more lies Ghostface gets. Ken calls up cast members from the previous Scream movies. I personally do not know who would wish to be a part of this, but if the mass majority would, I would probably insert them closer to the end, similar to what Spider-Man No Way Home did. The climax shows Ken teaming up with cast members from the previous Scream movies. They enter Matthew's old middle school. It has now been abandoned due to the building's bad construction, causing many parts to collapse. As the group trek through the high school, they hear a strange noise coming from the auditorium. There, on a torn-up projector screen, the group sees what seems to be a recording of Matthew's prank. It's revealed here why Matthew grew so violent. If you just excuse me, I'm going to go get water. It's just right near me, but be right back. Don't go anywhere. I know the thing about dead air is, like, really terrible, but, man, I'm doing this on such a tight schedule. It's just unbelievable. Mm. Oh, that's good H2O. Oh, that helped my voice a lot. So, Matthew's parents were quite well-known and wealthy, but one night they went out for their anniversary and a blackout occurred. They could not really see much as they were walking back home. Unfortunately, the same night that they were out, Scream 4 had released. Many fans were going crazy with enthusiasm, excitement, and an adrenaline rush that could only be simmered down by dressing up. One fan went a little too crazy, hopped up on drugs, and dressed up as Ghostface. They went all around town until they stumbled upon Matthew's parents. Matthew's dad thought he was a psychopath and tried to knock him out. Instead, the fans stabbed Matthew's dad and then Matthew's mom. The thing that destroyed Matthew was the same thing that inevitably he became. So, what was the prank? Well, Danny Boy and Rachel Rage dressed up as Matthew's parents with Ken dressing up as the drugged fan. During their prom, they did a little quote-unquote sketch. 
As Abby manipulated Matthew into staying with her, even dancing with him, Matthew saw the whole thing. He never saw and understood what really happened to his parents, but after that prank, he was sure scarred once again. The recording stops just as Ken takes off the ghost face mask, revealing to the screen actors and actresses Ken's true self. Ghostface rips through the projector screen and starts monologuing with the well-known voice altercation device. As he finishes, the group spin around in opposite directions, seeing a bunch of ghost faces appear. They almost work together to defeat the cult of Ghostface. All the ghost faces are eliminated, but it's Matthew who has the last laugh, as he and Ken fight atop a catwalk, the nearly short bridge that hangs above the stage. Y'all know that? Ken reverse plunges Matthew's knife into him. However, as Matthew pulls in Ken for a final kiss, he grabs Ken's neck and the two fall down through the stage floor. The ruckus from the climax causes the school building to come down altogether. As the actors and actresses rush out, they realize what a fan base is truly capable of when properly motivated. And that's the end of Seven Cream. Oh, Seven Cream. I thought I'd put it as Seven Eam. Huh. Didn't realize that I messed up the title for my own movie idea. <laughs> Funny. Anyways, that's the end of Scream Seven. I wouldn't call I wouldn't call this a bitter ending or a bitter sweet ending, mind you. Nor would I consider this to be a final and definitive installment of the franchise. I do enjoy Scream, and how it re- rejuvenated the horror franchise, but. It is also something to think about. I mean, I remember when 2017's It was announced in 2016, people went nuts, crazy even. They either dressed up as clowns or tried scaring people to death. Really, it's not just horror movies, but rather the love for any movie. Sometimes you can just drive a person so mad, they dare to live it. Also, to those who may have got, who may not have gotten another reference I made, which I also mistakenly forgot to bring up, the name Matthew Oliphant is a combination of the actor Matthew Lillard's first name and Timothy Oliphant's last name. Both actors played killers in separate installments of the Scream franchises. Both played ghost faces. Continuing this current horror genre theme is a horror Jason movie. Get it? A Jason, a Jason. To anyone who doesn't have hearing like a hound and didn't get my joke, we're looking over an installment of the Friday the 13th franchise, specifically Jason X. Now, I recently found out that there was a sequel to the movie, too, as a matter of fact. However, they were released as comics. I instead intend to wipe the slate clean and execute both of the comics execution. I call this one Jason in Time. It continues literally where Jason X left off, with Brodsky and Jason crash landing in another universe, utilizing the technology of the Eva suit and Uber Jason's technology, plus the unimaginable force coming off the speed of light. Brodsky is materialized back in time. He's, he arrives at Camp Crystal Lake on March 13, 1998. As he swims to shore, snow starts falling. He's so hot from the crash landing, he doesn't even feel it. He catches up with the two teens that were seen at the end of Jason X. He explains the situation, but with the teens thinking he's delir- delirious, Brodsky is sent to a mental hospital. The hospital he's sent to is called TIME. It stands for Torturing Incredibly Mental Experiments, but the full title isn't revealed until mid of the movie. This mental hospital is the largest but most secretive of all medical centers. The government developed it as a way to keep some of the most dangerous criminals away for good. 
Brodsky is only locked away there because every other mental hospital is currently filled up. A few months pass and Brodsky eventually starts going crazy himself, thinking everything he experienced was a dream. But actually, Brodsky has been going crazy because of the constant torturing that doctors do on him and have also inflicted on him. They try to persuade Brodsky that he's not from the future, but Brodsky is a total bad A dollar sign dollar sign. Those who understand that reference, hats off. He eventually escapes and tries to start a new life. On June 19, 1998, a few doctors are murdered. The police believe it was Brodsky. But they're soon confronted by the real assailant, Jason. Jason has returned, donning his Uber mask, but rocking a new change of clothing. He eliminates the cops and takes their car. Now Brodsky is trying to find Jason while Jason is trying to find Brodsky. Unfortunately for Brodsky, Jason has grown both a conscious and a new brain. He's read up on many things, including Brodsky's escape. When Jason and Brodsky meet up at Camp, Camp Crystal Lake to engage in a brutal but uh, kick a dollar sign dollar sign fight. Brodsky breaks Jason's arms, Jason breaks Brodsky's legs, Brodsky uses Jason's machete, and Jason uses Brodsky's laser. In the end, the two tire each other out, collapse on the ground. Then, a claw hand, a clawed hand, so like a hand with a claw, pops out through Brodsky's stomach and sucks him inside the dirt, or the dirty ground. A spit of blood shoots out from the hole, reminiscent of actor Johnny Depp's death in the first Nightmare on Elm Street movie. Then, a figure shoots from the hole, covered in blood and dirt. It's revealed the figure is none other than Freddy Krueger. Freddy explains how he knows Jason is from the future, and he shouldn't be in this time. The two engage in another fight, with Jason still weak from the previous one. When Jason gets a chance and escapes from Freddy, he drives back to time, the hospital, of course, not actual time, to grab some equipment. Freddy follows. Jason arrives at time and bumps into a couple of doctors. Thinking Jason is a patient, they drug him, causing Jason to fall asleep. In this dream, Jason walks down a metal staircase that is supposedly leading to a sewer system. Freddy jump scares him, and the two engage in yet another fight. Only now, Jason is able to conquer his fears of water. Now, Jason has become the conqueror, while Freddy's become the conquered. Knowing his weak spots, Jason beats Freddy, returns to the real world, only to meet up with his past self. Yet again, another fight breaks out, but this time between Jason, the future, and Jason, the past. Outside of the mental hospital, police officers have been gathering up, have been gathering up, ready to take out the Jasons. You know, my own spelling confuses me. <laughs> Even my own spelling confuses me because I'm reading this. You know, like uh, from a script, like almost like a prompter. I think that's what it's called, proctor, prompter. The thing that uh, some uh, weather uh, people, like anchor people, anchor men, anchor women, use when they're reading the news. I don't know, it's like, I can't remember all that, all that I say and what I remember. But anyways, a helicopter flies over the hospital and obliterates the building, showing Uber Jason. 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 Jesus. However, past Jason walks out of there without a scratch on him. The police officers start shooting, but stop when they see the fire from the explosion turn into a ginormous figure. So it basically shapeshifts. It's a fury Freddy, and with his giant flaming hand, he grabs Jason. Both are dragged back down to H-E double hockey sticks, and the police officers are literally shocked to death by what they just saw. 
two teams from the beginning of the movie and the ending of Jason X arrive to see that the now dead police officers have been made into some kind of symbol. The two teams are revealed to be ancestors of Tsunaron, another character from Jason X. The symbol is revealed to be the space station flag for Solaris. That means that Uber Jason is still alive and on the prowl. Basically, he remembers the space station flag and also at the same time the space station that he was being held prisoner on. I intended to include a post credit scene where Uber and Jason is wearing his more well-known attire and then this movie would have connected with the 2009 remake of Friday the 13th as Jason and Time ends where the remake left off, Jason grabbing for Whitney Miller who was played by and will be played by Amanda Rigetti. This now confirms that both 2001's Jason X, 2009's Friday the 13th, and whatever year Jason and Time would have come out, all three are part of a different universe and series of films. This no longer connects with the same series that brought us such classics like Jason Takes Manhattan or Friday the 13th Part 4, the not-so-final chapter. Yay! As for the sequel to Jason and Time, it continues where its predecessor left off. Jason grabs for Whitney Miller as Clay Miller, played by Jared Padalecki, grabs for Jason. The three are pulled down into Crystal Lake and engage in an underwater wrestling match with Clay and Whitney escaping Jason. Only because Reynolds, Rennie, Tsunaron, and Kristen, Chris Tsunaron, aka the kids from the ending scene, Jason X, intervened. The four escape in a minivan, explain to each other what's going on when they're all caught up. The four decide to uh, drive to Washington City and alert the feds. Jason soon arrives in Washington and confronts the feds, too. Unfortunately, instead of talking it out with them like civilized adults, Jason causes a freaking war to break out within headquarters. As feds, feds try to take down Jason, Rennie intercepts one of the feds' walkie-talkies. He drops off the others, first somewhere distant, and then heads back to headquarters. He drives his van through the entrance and straight into Jason, causing an explosion. But, and unfortunately, doesn't kill Jason. Not surprisingly, it did harm Rennie. As he tries to crawl away from the hockey mask killer, Jason catches up and hoists Rennie like a fist. Fish. Just when you think Rennie's about to become sushi, Rowan LaFontaine, an ally from Jason X, who was played by Lexa Doig, crashes the friggin' party with guns ablaze. Jason put down for a few moments, and Rowan grabs Rennie, and the two race off into the sunrise? They soon find Chris, Clay, and Whitney at a motel. The five sit in a suite together and try to think of a plan to finally put down Jason. However, they don't realize that the motel they're in is near Camp Crystal Lake. The five spin around quickly and see Jason crash through the suite's window. As Jason comes flying, he grabs Clay and crushes him through a wall. Chris and Rowan try to help but are killed in the process. Rennie grabs for Whitney and the two run off to cramp Camp Crystal Lake. Did I say cramp? I feel like I said cramp. Sometimes I forget what I say when I do. There, they begin booby-trapping the area, using only what they can find. From oars to weed whackers and canoes to fishing lines, they manage to set up quite a trap. Unfortunately, it goes to H.E. Double Hockey Sticks when Jason uses his machete as a test dummy. He throws it like a dart at a tripwire, which triggers the trap. The finale has a huge log swinging into a tall tree. This would have inevitably crush Jason, but he's instead fooled by the two last-standing people when Whitney dons clothing of Jason's mother. It triggers Jason, distracting him long enough for Rennie to shoot an arrow flare hybrid to Jason's chest, causing him to burst into flames. 
the movie ends with Rennie and Whitney looking up to the skies as they start to see glowing white cracks, implying that the timeline, as well as the universe as a whole, is changing. For the better, we have yet to see in another sequel. That wraps up this Jason Quadrilogy. What do you guys think? Would you have preferred the series stuck with the comics, or do you like my updated version? Was Freddy Krueger a little too much to add? Was there more I should have inserted just to, you know, make things a little better, more cohesive, more coherent, maybe? Is that the proper term to use? I don't know. Just text me through my Instagram any questions, comments, concerns, or remarks you might have at denny.pivac. That's D-E-N-I, a literal dot P-I-V-A-C. Our next uh, franchise linking Tumblr Reddit shipping unbelievably catchy sequel is to the movie Batman vs. the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yes, that is a real movie, and yes, it is based off a comic book series. I named it the sequel, I mean, Global Batman Global Swarming. If you don't get the reference or the joke, that's on you. It opens just a few moments after the first movie ended with the Joker-Shredder hybrid, or JS for short, flying back to Japan in a cargo jet. However, a UCO, unidentified crashing object, causes JS's ride to crash into a glacier in the Arctic. Joker-Shredder comes out fine because of the ooze, which has regenerative properties, but before you can make a run for it, Joker-Shredder is immediately swallowed by Godzilla. Turns out the glacier that the Joker Shredder hit was keeping Godzilla frozen for centuries, but due to the crash, the glacier shattered. Now Godzilla is heading towards New York City because he believes it to be Batman. <laughs> I was gonna say Batman. He believes New York City to be Japan. Sorry, because you know the flashy lights and the you know busy streets. Unfortunately, he doesn't notice that the UCO is actually an egg and hatching. Turns out that within those. Egg, I guess, not eggs, within those, just one. Within that egg is a bunch of little creatures that can expand with the help of some H2O. Don't get that reference or joke, you may be a little bit too young. As Godzilla heads towards New York City, Batman, Batgirl, Robin, and the Turtles are investigating the massacred crew of the cargo jet that Joker Shredder had stolen. Robin believes, that, believes it to be the handiwork of the Joker, but Mikey notices the, te- the tears in a crew member's jumpsuit and believes it's actually Shredder. Batgirl and Donnie put together that it might be both a hybrid of the two, but before they can confirm anything, they hear an obnoxiously loud roar, roar confirming that Godzilla has arrived. It's dark, so the heroes can't see anything, but lightning strikes and reveals Godzilla's shadowy silhouette. Everyone is stunned but Raphael. Taking out his size, he races toward a crane and swings on the hook long enough to give him the proper launch attack. Raphael punctures Godzilla with his size and uses them like climbing gear to scale up. Godzilla looks down and only snorts, blowing Raphael into the ocean. The rest of the heroes finally get into action. Batman gets into his Batmobile, which transforms into the Batboat. Robin hops into his cycle, which turns into a jet ski and Batgirl hitches a ride on the turtle's blimp. Batman and Robin fire everything they got, whilst the turtles shoot as many grappling hooks as they can to hold Godzilla in place. Fortunately, it knocks out Godzilla for the time being. Batman calls some of his super fans, and they manage to take Godzilla to the Star Labs, to the Star, to Star Labs, not the Star Labs, it's just Star Labs, to have him examined. 
When they arrive, Barry Allen, a.k.a. the speedster superhero Flash, greets them and then starts geeking over the existence of Godzilla. Mikey and Robin split from the group to examine other parts of Star Labs while Donnie and Batgirl split to do something else. Batman and Leo take Raph to the emergency room as Mikey and Robin get lost. They stumble upon the hall of villains. Even though there are many don't-touch signs, Mikey and Robin touch almost everything. Unbeknownst to them, the statues are actually villains. It turns out that Barry had created a device that puts the villain in a statue solidified state. Only if they are touched can they be released. He got that idea from another villain he fought called Lady Granite. She used to say a stone-cold heart can only be healed by a warm touch. Well, depending on how hot Mikey and Robin's hands are from bouncing all around all day, I would say there's a good chance mayhem will unravel. Barry and everyone else in Star Labs are lured, race to the Hall of Villains. Now almost every villain the Flash is released. Unfortunately for them, before they can do any butt-kicking, Godzilla awakens. He signals for some of his own friends, the monsters with the, within the egg, who were also banded at sea. Barry calls every other superhero knows, and he becomes an all-out super- or actually not superhero, so I should have rephrased this. Meta-human versus monster battle. M versus M. In the end, Barry is forced to time travel and prevent Godzilla from escaping, as well as the other monsters from hatching. He does so and destroys both Godzilla and the egg. However, Joker Shredder isn't very much appreciative and literally backstabs Flash. Some of the Flash's speed is absorbed by the ooze and gives Joker Shredder enough speed to travel anywhere in the world. Since New York City is closer, Joker Shredder goes back there to finish Batman and Ninja Turtles. However, before Flash destroyed Godzilla and the egg, he sent a message to Batman warning of Joker Shredder. So, when Joker Shredder arrives, the turtles and the Batman are holding up a huge blaster, like the power just do at the end of any epic battle from any epic season, and fire away. The blast obliterates Joker Shredder, and everyone goes home. Even Barry, because, well, he can heal very fast because he is the Flash. A post-credit scene <coughs> reveals the remains of the Arctic explosion, fell into the underwater volcanoes and we hear a distinctive roar. It's hinting at King Kong. Anyways, what do you guys think about my crossover? I wanted to utilize both Godzilla and King Kong since they are both currently in Warner Bros. Pictures possession. TMNT and Batman are too. Again, any questions, comments, or concerns can be addressed through my Insta. Also, any remarks, if you prefer. Anywho, I also wondered about the timeline of a lot of TV shows. Like, I was thinking about that. Like, most of the time a show will air an episode once a week. I think to myself, the whole episode or story could not have taken a whole week to resolve, right? Like, could have either taken a very little amount of time, like a few days, or a very long amount of time, like a few weeks. And I thought, what happens between the breaks? What happens when a show does not air for weeks, months, heck, even years? This is where I scavenged for all my forgotten works, and cumulatively made them into an anthological limited miniseries. Since I wrote these when I was obsessed with Buffy the Vampire Slayer and its spin-off series, Angel, I decided to call this series Angel of the Lost Episodes. The show, this shows what happened between the time we waited months for an episode or another season to return. The first episode is called White Button. Angel travels to former Yugoslavia and catches up with a friend of his. He explains the problem he's having with a long-distance relationship. He's currently living in a remote small town in Bosnia, while his partner lives in a remote small town in Serbia. It's like a Romeo and Juliet scenario. The first thing they coincidentally wrote to each other, they expressed their love for a particular band, Bielodugme. Translated from former Yugoslavian, that then to English, that means white button. It's translated to white button. 
Both wished they could have seen them in concert. One day, their wish came true. When they were given tickets to see a concert that was happening in a city between both of theirs, Sarajevo. Angel's friend went with his siblings, while the girl went with her father. The two literally bumped into each other at a concession stand. Angel's friend, Renner, spilled his soda on her shirt, and then the soda made the girl's shirt see-through. Renner spilled soda on his shirt, and both observed each other's physique. They immediately fell in love again just from that. Throughout the whole concert, they had an incredible time, but realized they must part ways soon. They agreed that a year from then, which was 1984, that they would meet up again. They did for as long as they could until the Yugoslav Wars began. The two were suddenly on opposite lines of fire. Angel reflects on the information given and decides to do something about it. Angel grabs his prized motorcycle and Renner hops on. The two speed off, rescue Renner's girl, Veronica, and the three drive off into the night. The next episode continues where the previous one left off. Since last we saw them, Renner and Veronica decided the best option was to run away from life of war into a life where smaller battles could be fought and won. This episode is titled White Buttons and shows the couple now husband and wife arriving in Canada. So instead of white button, it's now plural, white buttons, like starting something even bigger, like maybe a family. At first, their lives seemed quite normal. However, after their third child, <coughs> they discover something's off. Their children should not be theirs, and their family should not all be in Canada. However, somehow, it coincidentally is. Everything works in their benefit. Years go by until the couple believe something or someone could be pulling strings for their lives to go so smoothly. But why? Though this episode is somewhat a repeat of the first one, there is quite a twist at the end that tops the originals. The narrator for both stories is Angel, and he is revealed to have been tampering with the timeline with magic. He in a way feels guilty for all the people he's lost and all the lives he's risked. So now he wants to do something in return, something pure, something good, something heartwarming. I was going to say heartful, but that sounds like hurtful, but I don't mean to say hurtful, I mean to say heartful, like heartfelt, I guess. For so long, he helped his friends so that they could live peacefully. However, it came at a cost, because now Angel is being hunted by a guardian of time travel, which I called the Shwila, plural Shwilin. They are shattering, gla- shattering glass-covered features. Creatures, not features. Oh my god, I'm mixing up words. I'm being delusional now. They basically look like they have shattered glass covered all over their bodies. They're and creatures, of course. And they lay dormant within reflective surfaces, so like glass doors, glass windows, anything glassy. But wait until an anachronism occurs. Once an anachronism strikes, they find the culprit and pull them through the reflective surface dimension, which creates a gateway along the Shwila to enter the real world basically switching places with the original person so as not to disturb the balance of life. However, the gateway is just a door, and the door can only be opened if the Shwila escape from within an organism. They do that by spreading the organism out and filling the entire reflective surface's space. Basically, imagine your worst enemy and their whole body squashed like Play-Doh on a glass door, but within the glass. Once the surface is covered by the organism's body, the surface and organism burst like glass, and out comes from it the Shwila. The saga ends with the third episode titled White Buttons Everywhere. It begins with Angel confronting a Shwila. Since the Shwilin have been after Angel for millenniums, the final battle begins between the two, mystic versus mythic. Angel eventually overcomes the Shwila, 
lives to fight another day. The next episode I am about to read to you can only be interpreted and read as an audiobook. Otherwise, any other weird tone I explain would seem strange. This story is called The Wolf Ram's Heart. My, 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 my name is, is Damon Rathral. It said with an annoying stutter. Only now do I re- criticize this monster's utter because of the horribly wretched thing it would do soon after. My family was murdered by a couple of men in military garments. It continued speaking. Could it be the initiative? Cordelius suggested. No, the government shut them down last year. They they wouldn't risk rebooting an already failed project, Angel replied. You mean they wouldn't be that stupid? Gunn added. Fred smirked from under the front desk. The six of us were all together at headquarters, a.k.a. the Hyperion Hotel. I was still working my office at my desk, trying to find out more about our supposed victim. I, I, I don't think they were working for the government. It spoke again. One of the men dropped this card on the floor. He explained, passing the card to Angel. Even from my desk, I could see what the card read and who belonged to. Wolfram and Hart, Angel said to himself, crumpling the card in his hand. <coughs> you, you, you know them? it asked. Know them? We almost died because of them on numerous occasions, Gunn replied. And if you don't mind me asking, how did you know who the people that broke into your house were, and how'd you know they were men? Gunn asked. Because they talked exactly like men, uh, like me, he replied. Not exactly like you, that's that's for sure, Cordelia said with a smirk. I smirked too, with her, of course. One voice sounded distinctive, like, like a young Texan version of Jack Nicholson, he explained. We all looked at it peculiar, peculiarly, even Fred. But even with a sore throat, it added, Lindsay, Angel replied. He grabbed his duster, weapons, and comb and headed out. Meanwhile, Cordelia and I discussed the appearance of the monster. Doesn't he remind you of Angel a little bit? Cordelia asked. What? With his black leather duster, spiky gelled up brown hair, and the fact he's been chased by Wolfram and Hart? No, not at all. I said with a smirk. Odia then gave me a look, one which made both of us laugh. What's so funny? Fred asked as she entered my office. Doesn't Damon remind you of Angel a little bit? Cordelia asked, giggling a little. Why, what are you talking about? Fred replied, confused. His face is a bit greener, as if he's sick. He's got two protruding zits on his forehead, and he's... he's... Fred stopped as the look of shock suddenly appeared on her face. That's no mere human. That's the constable, Fred yelled, racing to grab a weapon. Just before she was able to cut the monster in half, Gunn grabbed her from behind and carried off to her room, like a mother protecting her child. Cordelia and I followed after. Okay, Mom explained to me why we were just about to turn a client into sushi, Gunn asked frustratingly. Because that isn't a client, it's Constable Norwick, Fred explained, as she started looking for worried. You mean that... Deaf Ewok demon from Pali? Pali? 
Gun replied, Death Walk, I corrected. Whatever, Wes. Fred, are you trying to tell me we're all seeing the same person differently? Gun asked, also starting to get a little worried. Yes, Fred replied, sweetly. The four of us poked our heads out from behind the stairway and observed the monster even closer. Suddenly, its form became clearer. Fred was right about one thing. That thing down there isn't, isn't human, I whispered. What should we do then? Back to me, just as I was talking. You know, me, me, like, Denny, me. Now, this episode, I assume, could have been a bottle episode and just have the characters trapped in a room discussing a plan. It could have also been a clip show with the gang recalling every time a plan went wrong. The climax has Angel arriving and accidentally killing the constable when a sheep shifts into a sheep and Angel turns into a vampire. He launches for the constable, ripping him up to shreds. The threat is eliminated, the day is saved, and the next episode is titled Mad Men Tell Too Many Tales. Since the first three episodes of this limited anthological series took place just before season one, and this previous episode took place just after season two, I decided that this next episode takes place just after season four, considering season three ended with Angel being sunk to the bottom of the friggin' ocean. At a psychiatric hospital, Angel reunites with another good friend from his darker past. Working undercover, he tells his friend what he's after, and his friend explains how he unexpectedly obtains psychic powers, meaning gets visions when a person's about to die. He remembers Cordelia and Doyle had similar powers and worries that his friend could be in danger. Angel decides to test out his friend's newfound powers by getting his old gang together and stopping a new evil looming over a city in Washington State. The next episode is titled Island of Desire, because the small city in Washington State is nestled on an island. So, apparently, Angel's friend had died in the same small town centuries ago. This reveals that Angel's friend can reincarnate as they interrogate townsfolk, as they interrogate townsfolk asking if they recognize Peter. They find out that, as, that not many people hated Peter before he was reincarnated. He was generally a decent guy, the original Peter, of course. However, Wesley believes that the townsfolk are acting quite suspicious. He is right when his team come in contact with ghosts. Hang on for a water break. Sorry for the dead air. Oh, man, that was so good. I love water sometimes. Ah, so much. Anyways, these ghosts are the spirits of the people who also died in the small town. The only way they can return to corporeal form is if they if they find someone who is near who is near death. Once they are, they can absorb the spirits and act like hosts to those spirits, who are essentially vessels. If they don't, the ghosts will soon fade away and never return. Similar to a concept in Coco. Disney's Coco, of course. Angel eventually discovers that the townsfolk are actually bad spirits that possess people in orthodoxy. He manages to do a spell that relinquishes Peter's powers and the town's curse. Angel is able to finish his previous mission, which is the episode after. We're going to look into, entitled, Same Love, Same Life. Angel meets up with the young woman who is presumably searching for her mother. Apparently, she abandoned her as a child as their... Last hope, they traveled to a small town called Lenko, Massachusetts. That was the last uh, place anyone saw the woman's mother. Unfortunately, the daughter is revealed to be a clone of the mother. Her mother was trying to find the solution to cloning, and he was leaving people to do so. When her employers found out, they tried to sabotage as much as they could. The mother managed to acquire a decent proportion of her equipment and fled to the countryside to continue her experiment. 
However, when the daughter slash clone finds out, she decides to expose her creator for who she really is. Actress Angela Saraf- Sarafian, Sarafian, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, correctly, would play the creation, and Juliet Landau would play the creator. Because I always thought these two actresses looked very, fam- very similar. Since the actress Juliet Landau, however, had previously played the character Drusilla on both Buffy and Angel, I would have added little nods to her similar appearance and her likeness, of course. Also, the creator's name is Glenda Y. Curtuni, whilst her creation is just named Curtuni. Just Curtuni. Well, that's all the stuff that I could come up with in such little time. I also had some notes written down here somewhere. Um, uh, oops, sorry. There it is. Oh, found them. Okay, uh, yep, here it is. So, Batman and Catwoman would have hooked up, had a baby, died after 1997's Batman and Robin, could be exactly right after 1997, with Helena Kyle being born in 1999, since actress Ashley Scott portrayed her at 25, Birds of Prey the series must have likely taken place 2024, meaning Barbara Gordon would have been born in 1990, since her actress Diana Meyer portrayed her at 34. Huh. Meaning... She would have to have been 14 when Batman slash Dick Grayson disappears. Wait, Batman? Birds of Prey? This can only be one thing. Next time on All Murders in the Writer's Room, I'm going to be writing my very own wickedized plot of the incomplete fifth Batman movie, Batman Triumphant. Tune in next time. Same omit word time, same omit word channel. It's great to be back, everyone. And, uh... I hope you have a great winter term. See you.